trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Well, officially, this is July 5th, so it's Independence Day observed because July 4th was on a Sunday. But I am so dedicated. Okay, actually, I was just bored and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a show anyway. (laughs) But there is a lot of great stuff to talk about since Independence Day has come and gone, you know, even though we're observing it today for many parts of the nation. It's an opportunity to reflect on exactly what we celebrate for Independence Day. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody, so please don't feel like, oh boy, here we go. He's going to recount all the ways we're not celebrating it correctly. Well, I think different people have different, uh, you know, different emphasis and different ways that they like to observe our nation's independence. Now, having said that, and again, this is not to, to make you feel guilty. This is just an observation, and I might even be dead wrong about this. It seems a lot of people, well, they, they love the celebrate part. And I mean, who can blame them, right? That's, uh, that's half the fun. It's time off work. It's, you know, an excuse to cook some hot dogs or hamburgers and get together with friends and play and camp. And I actually traveled a little bit this, uh, this past weekend. Ended up uh, spending some time in the Bear, Bear Lake area of uh, southeastern Idaho. Beautiful. Oh, my word. Absolutely gorgeous countryside. A lot of people out there, too. I mean, a lot. I don't know if you get a ton of people from eastern Idaho and northern Utah coming in there, but that place was packed. Garden City was just absolutely wall-to-wall people. And I'm sure most people were... You know, just looking forward to time together with family. This was actually the occasion that brought us down there was a family reunion. Lots of fun. Lots of great stuff. But I found myself trying to find a little bit of time. And for me, that was early in the morning. I got up and uh, my my brother-in-law, Alan, has this amazing cabin that he has been building. It's a work in progress. He's been building on it for 16 years. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful little cabin. I don't. I should shouldn't say little. It's it. You know, we had twenty people or close to it in there, and uh, and pretty comfortably. But he built he built this incredible deck out there on the east side of the cabin, and I spent a couple of mornings sitting out there on that deck, watching the sun come up, enjoying the cool. It was cool, by the way, for everybody else who's suffering under a heat wave in the west. Uh, you know, it would get down to about 54 degrees overnight, which just feels incredible. But I'm telling you, the moment the sun popped up over the mountains, whew, somebody set that thing to bake. And it was insanely hot. But I had some time to stop and think about, okay, what exactly am I celebrating this Independence Day? And I mean, we, we attended a parade, we went to, uh, there was an incredible patriotic uh, program at the uh, Paris-Idaho Tabernacle, which is one of the most remarkable religious edifices I've seen in my life. Uh, I've never seen more flags, more star stripes and bunting, you know, <laughs> inside than what I saw there. But I just had to stop and just for a moment, in the quiet of the morning, 
just kind of send my love out there into the universe for that founding generation, the ones who found the moral clarity to declare independence from Britain. And I'm sure their plan at the moment wasn't, hey, this is going to be, you know, one of our best national holidays at some point, And everybody's going to be thankful because they get time off work. And, you know, we're, we're there to, to make sure that it happens. Instead, I spend some time thinking about the, the incredible miracle that took place. And in the sense that, you know, on paper, there's no way. There's just no way they should have won. But they did. And for me, what, what makes the difference, and I realize not everybody's going to agree with this, and that's, that's fine, you don't have to, was they felt that there was divine providence. They felt that there was a reason why God prospered their cause when it came to securing their, their freedom. Now, to some people, that's going to sound very arrogant. Well, why would, you, why would the creator of the universe have any interest in this? And I don't presume to speak for the creator of the universe. But I think there are ample opportunities within the Bible that, uh, that talk about, you know, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. My, my point is simply this. Within the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's pretty strong evidence that God is actually in favor of liberty. In fact, I, I agree with those who've gone so far as to say it may be his greatest gift to us. But when you stop and wonder, what exactly does that mean? What exactly has it done? What's, what, has, what has liberty brought us in the sense of you know, what, what happened after this nation achieved its independence? Well, this is where the incredible Leonard E. Reed comes in. And I have a couple of different essays of his, or at least excerpts from those essays, that I want to share with you. His, his essay, The Essence of Americanism, is one of the best ways I have found to recount the remarkable shift that came about as a result of American independence. And it's also, and this is, you know, this is not my primary um, reason for sharing this, but it's also a really good antidote, a strong antidote to all this poisonous revamping of American history that's currently fashionable. You know what I'm talking about. The idea that everything that came before us was racist and stupid and superstitious and wrong, and therefore we have to reject it in favor of something new. People who advocate for this are incredibly short-sighted, at least in, in my point of view, and they're overlooking the incredible good that came about, not just politically, not just economically, but even spiritually, as a result of that American Revolution. So I want to share some excerpts with you from Leonard Reed's Essence of Americanism. Now this apparently was one of, uh, this was first delivered as a speech back in, 19, uh, sorry, 1961. And it was something he would offer as a traditional opening address at dozens of fee seminars. Maybe you're familiar with this line. Someone once said, it isn't that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It has been tried and found difficult and abandoned. Reed says perhaps the same thing might be said about freedom. The American people are becoming more and more afraid of and are running away from their own revolution. Now he says, I think that statement takes a bit of documentation. Keep in mind, this is 1961. This is, we're talking 60 years ago. He shared this. 
He says, I would like to go back a little over three centuries in our history to the year 1620, which was the occasion of the landing of our pilgrim fathers at Plymouth Rock. That little colony began its career in a condition of pure and unadulterated communism, for it made no difference how much or how little any member of that colony produced. All the produce went into a common warehouse under authority, and the proceeds of the warehouse were doled out in accordance with the authority's idea of needs. In short, the pilgrims began the practice of a principle held up by Karl Marx two centuries later as the ideal of the Communist Party, from each according to his ability, to each according to need, and by force. Now, there was a good reason why these communalistic or communistic practices were discontinued. As Leonard Reed points out, it's because members of the pilgrim colony were starving and dying. Now, as a rule, that kind of experience causes people to stop and think about it. Anyway, they did stop and think about it. During the third winter, Governor Bradford got together with the remaining members of the new colony and said to them, in effect, this coming spring, we are going to try a new idea. We're going to drop the practice of from each according to ability to each according to need. We're going to try the idea of to each according to merit. And when Governor Bradford said that, he enunciated the private property principle as clearly and succinctly as any economist ever had. That principle is nothing more nor less than each individual having a right to the fruits of his own labor. Next spring came and it was observed that not only were father in the field, was father in the field, but mother and children were there also. Governor Bradford records, any general want or famine hath not been among them to this day. Now, Leonard Reed says, says it was by reason of the practice of this private property principle that began in this country an era of growth and development, which sooner or later had to lead to revolutionary political ideas. And he says it did lead to what I refer to as the real American Revolution. i got to put the brakes on here because we're coming up on the break here, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about why this was such a powerful and important revolution, this Declaration of Independence, not just economically, not just politically, but spiritually as well. Nobody recounts this better than Leonard E. Reed in his essay, The Essence of Americanism. Yes, there is a link in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Also, HSLAmmo.com, pure-light.com. And a special thank you to our friends at MonticelloCollege.org. Wonderful, wonderful organizations and businesses. I hope you'll do business with them. If you don't need to do business with them, at least drop them a line. Let them know that uh, that they are reaching you via this program. And yes, there are links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I'm sharing this uh, essay from Leonard Reed, The Essence of Americanism. I've read this a few times over the years. I just think he has a real talent for summing up what was it about this revolution that was so different. 
Why did this one end in a very positive result rather than just continuing to spiral out of control in bloodshed, kind of like the, the terror that became the, uh, f- the uh, French Revolution? Well, here's how, here's how Leonard Reed describes it. He says, I don't think of the real American Revolution as the armed conflict we had with King George III. In fact, he says that was a relatively or reasonably minor fracas as such fracases go. The real American Revolution was a novel concept or idea which broke up with the whole political history of the world. Up until 1776, men had been contesting with each other, killing each other by the millions over the age-old question of which of the numerous forms of authoritarianism, that is, man-made authority, should preside as sovereign over man. And then in 1776, in the fraction of one sentence written into the Declaration of Independence, was stated the real American Revolution, the new idea. And it was this, quote, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. End quote. That was it. This is the essence of Americanism. This is the rock upon which the whole American miracle was founded. Now, Leonard E. Reed says this revolutionary concept was at once a spiritual, a political, and an economic concept. It was spiritual in that the writers of the Declaration recognized and publicly proclaimed that the Creator was the endower of man's rights, and thus the Creator is sovereign. It was political in implicitly denying that the state is the endower of men's rights, thus declaring the state is not sovereign. It was economic in the sense that if an individual has a right to his life, it follows that he has a right to sustain his life, the sustenance of life being nothing more or nor less than the fruits of one's own labor. Now, Leonard Reed says, it's one thing to state such a revolutionary concept as this, It's quite another thing to implement it, to put it into practice. To accomplish this, our founding fathers added two political instruments, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Now, these two instruments were essentially a set of prohibitions, prohibitions not against the people, but against the thing the people from their old world experience had learned to fear, namely overextended government. From here, he goes into the benefits of limited government noting that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights more severely limited government than government had ever before been limited in the history of the world. And there were benefits that flowed from the severe limitation of the state. Number one, there wasn't a single person who turned to government for security, welfare, or prosperity because government was so limited that it had nothing on hand to dispense, nor did it have the power to take from some that it might give to others. To what or to whom do people turn if they cannot turn to government for security, welfare, or prosperity? They turn where they should turn, to themselves. As a result of this discipline founded on the concept that the Creator, not the state, is the endower of man's rights, we developed in this country on an unprecedented scale a quality of character that Emerson referred to as self-reliance. All over the world, the American people gained the reputation of being self-reliant. Now, there was another benefit that flowed from this severe limitation of government. When government is limited to the inhibition of the destructive actions of men, that is, when it is limited to inhibiting fraud and depredation, 
violence, and misrepresentation when it is limited to invoking a common justice, then there is no organized force standing against the productive or creative actions of the citizens. As a consequence of this limitation on government, there occurred a freeing, a releasing of creative human energy on an unprecedented scale. This was the combination mainly responsible for the American miracle, founded on the belief that the creator, not the state, is the endower of man's rights. Now this manifested itself among the people as individual freedom of choice. People had freedom of choice as to how they employed themselves. They had freedom of choice as to what they did with the fruits of their own labor. But something happened to this remarkable idea of ours, this revolutionary concept. It seems that the people we placed in government office as our agents made a discovery. Having acquisitive instincts for affluence and power over others, as indeed some of us do, they discovered that the force which inheres in government, which the people had delegated to them, in order to inhibit the destructive actions of man, this monopoly of force could be used to invade the productive and creative areas in society, one of which is the business sector. They also found that if they incurred any deficits by their interventions, the same government force could be used to collect the wherewithal to pay the bills. Now, Leonard Reed says, I would like to suggest to you that the extent to which government in America has departed from the original design of inhibiting the destructive actions of man and invoking a common justice, the extent to which government has invaded the productive and creative, creative areas, the extent to which government in this country has assumed the responsibility for the security, welfare, and prosperity of our people is a measure of the extent to which socialism and communism have developed here in this land of ours. Now again, I'm going to remind you, he first delivered these words back in 1961, 60 years ago. You suppose we've moved any closer <laughs> to socialism and communism and other forms of collectivism? I would say most definitely. Now he asks, how can we, can we measure this development? Not precisely, says Leonard Reed, but we can get a fair idea of it. By referring to something I said a moment ago about one of our early characteristics as a nation. Individual freedom of choice as to the use of the fruits of one's own labor. He says, if you will measure the loss in freedom of choice in this matter, you'll get an idea of what's going on. Leonard Reed says, there was a time about 120 years ago when the average citizen had somewhere between 95 and 98% freedom of choice with each of his income dollars. That was because the tax take of the government, federal, state, and local, was between 2 and 5% of the earned income of the people. But as the emphasis shifted from this earlier design, as government began to move in to invade the productive and creative areas and to assume the responsibility for the security, welfare, and prosperity of the people, the percentage of the take of the people's earned income increased. That percentage of the take kept going up and up and up, until today it's not 2 to 5%, it's now, and again he's talking 1961, 35%, over 35%. Now Leonard Reed says, whenever the take of the people's earned income by government reaches a certain level, 20 to 25%, it's no longer politically expedient to pay for the costs of government by direct tax levies. Governments then resort to inflation as a means of financing their ventures. And this is what's happening to us now. 
By inflation, he says, I mean increasing the volume of money in the national government's fiscal policy. By the national government's fiscal policy. Governments resort to inflation with popular support because the people are naive enough to believe they can have their cake and eat it too. Many people do not realize they cannot continue to enjoy the so-called benefits from government without having to pay for them. They do not appreciate the fact that inflation is probably the most unjust and most cruel tax of all. We're going to come back to Leonard Reed's essay, The Essence of Americanism, right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. If you uh, want to check out the show notes, just go to thebrianhydeshow.com. I post show notes with every episode, which includes links to the various articles or commentators that I'm sharing, because I am inviting you to take a little bit deeper dive for the sake of your own understanding. There is no implied idea that uh, you have to agree, and I'm going to give you homework and make you study until you're marching in lockstep here. It's okay if you disagree. You do not have to accept this. I share stuff that I think adds value or at least adds some insight or perspective. You may not agree with it, but you'll still have a broader perspective than you had before. But more than anything, I'm encouraging you, that seeker of truth, that wrong thinker, I need you to to own your worldview, to take to be willing to take a closer look and to vet these kind of things for yourself and do your own research to start thinking like an expert. Because right now there is so much disinformation out there and, and not just sometimes outright lies to you, but simply the, the stories that, that will not be covered. May have an example of that coming up here in just a bit. In the meantime, I'm sharing with you Leonard E. Reed's essay. This is from a speech first delivered back in 1961 called The Essence of Americanism. He was talking about inflation as we broke away. And he says, inflation is the fiscal concomitant of socialism or the welfare state or state interventionism. Call it what you will. Inflation is a political weapon. There are no other means of financing the welfare state except by inflation. So if you don't like inflation, he says, there's only one thing you can do assist in returning our government to its original principles. Now, Leonard Reed says, one of my hobbies is cooking, and therefore, I'm familiar with the gadgets around the kitchen. One of the things with which I'm familiar is a sponge, and a sponge in some respects resembles a good economy. A sponge will sop up an awful lot of mess, but when the sponge is saturated, the sponge itself is a mess, and the only way you can make it useful again is to wring the mess out of it. He says, I hope my analogy is clear. Inflation in the United States has ever so many more catastrophic potentials than has ever been the case in any other country in history. He says, we are the most advanced division of labor society that's ever existed. That is, we are more specialized than any other people has ever been. We are further removed from self-subsistence. Indeed, he says, we're so specialized today that every one of us, everybody in this room, in the nation, even the farmer, is absolutely dependent 
upon a free, uninhibited exchange of our numerous specialities. That is a self-evident fact. Now, he says, in any highly specialized economy, you do not affect specialized exchanges by barter. You never observe a man going into a gasoline station saying, here is a goose, give me a gallon of gas. That's not the way to do it in a specialized economy. You use an economic circulatory system, which is money, the medium of exchange. Now, this economic circulatory system, in some respects, can be likened to the circulatory system of the body, which is the bloodstream. The circulatory system of the body picks up oxygen in the lungs and ingested food in the midsection and distributes these specialties to the 30 trillion cells of the body. At those points, it picks up carbon dioxide and waste matter and carries them off. Leonard Reed says, if I could put a hypodermic needle into one of your veins and thin your bloodstream to the point where it would no longer make these exchanges, and when I reach that point, we could refer to you quite accurately in the past tense. By the same token, you can thin your economic circulatory system, your medium of exchange, to the point where it will no longer circulate products and services of economic specialization. He says, those of you who are interested in doing something about this have a right to ask yourselves a perfectly logical question. Has there ever been an instance, historically, when a country has been on this toboggan and succeeded in reversing itself? Now, there have been some minor, dif- minor instances, rather. He says, I won't attempt to enumerate them. The only significant one took place in England after the Napoleonic Wars. This is how England did it. England's debt in relation to her resources was larger than ours is now. Her taxation was confiscatory. Restrictions on the exchanges of goods and services were numerous. And there were strong controls on production and prices. Had it not been for the smugglers, many people would have starved. But he says something happened in that situation, and we ought to take cognizance of it. What happened there might be emulated here, even though our problem is on a much larger scale. There were in England such men as John Bright and Richard Cobden, men who understood the principle of freedom of exchange. Over in France, there was a politician by the name of Chevalier and an economist named Frederick Bastiat. Incidentally, he says, if any of you have not read the little book by Bastiat entitled The Law... I commend it as the finest thing I have ever read on the principles one ought to keep in mind when trying to judge for oneself what the scope of government should be. Bastiat was feeding his brilliant ideas to Cobden and Bright. These men were preaching the merits of freedom of exchange. Members of Parliament listened, and as a consequence, there began the greatest reform movement in British history. Parliament repealed the Corn Laws, which would be like repealing subsidies to farmers. They repealed the Poor Laws which here would be like repealing Social Security. And fortunately for them, they had a monarch, her name was Victoria, who relaxed the authority that the English people themselves believed to be implicit in her office. She gave them freedom in the sense that a prisoner on parole has freedom, a permissive kind of freedom but with lots of latitude. Englishmen, as a result, roamed all over the world achieving unparalleled prosperity and building an enlightened empire. And this development continued until just before World War I. Then, the same old political disease set in again. Now, what precisely is this disease that causes inflation and all these other troubles? Well, it has many popular names, some of which I've mentioned, such as socialism, communism, state interventionism, and welfare statism. It has other names such as fascism and Nazism. And it has some local names like New Deal, Fair Deal, 
new republicanism, new frontier, and the like. But he says, if you take a careful look at these so-called progressive ideologies, you will discover that each of them has a characteristic common to all the rest. This common characteristic is a cell in the body politic which has a cancer-like capacity for inordinate growth. This characteristic takes the form of a belief. It is a rapidly growing belief in the use of organized force, government, not to carry out its original function of inhibiting the destructive actions of men and invoking a common justice, but to control the productive and creative activity of citizens in a society. That's all it is. He says, check any one of these ideologies and see if this is not its essential characteristic. Now, he says, here's an example of what I mean. I can remember the first time when, if we wanted a house or housing, we relied on private enterprise. He says, I remember that time, and first we relied on the person who wanted the house, second we relied on the persons who wanted to compete in the building, and third, we relied on those who thought they saw some advantage to themselves in loaning the money for the tools, material, and labor. Under that system of free enterprise, Americans built more square feet of housing per person than any other country on the face of the earth. And despite that remarkable accomplishment, more and more people are coming to believe that the only way we can have adequate housing is to use government to take the earnings from some and give these earnings in the form of housing to others. In other words, we're right back where the Pilgrim Fathers were in 1620 to 1623 and where Karl Marx was in 1847, from each according to ability to each according to need and by the use of force. Now, Leonard Reed says, as this belief in the use of force as a means of creative accomplishment increases, the belief in free men, that is, men acting freely, competitively, cooperatively, voluntarily, correspondingly diminishes. Increased compulsion, well, freedom declines. Therefore, the solution to this problem, if there be one, must take a positive form, namely the restoration of a faith in what free men can accomplish. Leonard Reed says the American people by and large have lost track of the spiritual antecedent of the American miracle. He says you're given a choice. Either you accept the idea of the creator as the endower of man's rights or you submit to the idea that the state is the endower of man's rights. And he says I double dare any of you to offer a third alternative. He says we've forgotten the real source of our rights and are suffering the consequences. Millions of people aware that something is wrong look around for someone to blame. They dislike socialism and communism. They give lip service to their dislike. They sputter about the new frontier and modern republicanism. But he says, among the millions who say they don't like these ideologies, you cannot find one in 10,000 whom you yourself will designate as a skilled, accomplished expositor of socialism's opposite. The free market private property, limited government philosophy with its moral and spiritual antecedents. He says, how many people do you know who are knowledgeable in this matter? Very few, I dare say. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing with you this article from Leonard E. Reed. This is from uh, his article, The Essence of Americanism. And this really struck me when he talked about how, you know, a lot of people will complain. They know that something's wrong. They look around for someone to blame. They know they don't like communism or uh, socialism. They give lip service to their dislike. But he says, among the millions who say, yeah, we don't like this. He says, you can't find one in 10,000 whom you yourself would designate as a skilled, accomplished expositor of socialism's opposite, the free market, private property, limited government philosophy with its moral and spiritual antecedents. He says, no wonder we're losing the battle. The problem then, the real problem, is developing a leadership for this philosophy. Persons from different walks of life who understand and can explain this philosophy. Now, he's talking about you and me. Maybe you felt that. Did you get a little chill up your spine? Like, oh, crap. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to do something. Well, understand this. Leonard Reed says this leadership functions at three levels. The first level requires that an individual achieve that degree of understanding, which makes it utterly impossible for him to have any hand in supporting or giving any encouragement to any socialistic activities. Leadership at this level doesn't demand any creative writing, thinking, and talking. It does require an understanding of what things are really socialistic, however disguised. People reject socialism in name, but once any socialistic activity has been Americanized, he says nearly everybody thinks it's all right. So you have to take the definition of socialism, state ownership and control of the means of production, and check our current practices against this definition. As a matter of fact, he says you should read the 10 points of the Communist Manifesto and see how close we have come to achieving them right here in America. It's amazing. The second level of leadership is reached when you achieve that degree of understanding and exposition, which makes it possible to expose the fallacies of socialism and set forth some of the principles of freedom to those who come within your personal orbit. Now, this takes a lot more doing. He says, one of the things you have to do to achieve this second level of leadership is some studying. Most people have to at any rate, and one of the reasons the Foundation for Economic Education exists is to help such people. He says, at the Foundation, we're trying to understand the freedom philosophy better ourselves, and we seek ways of explaining it with greater clarity. The results appear in single-page releases, in a monthly journal, in books and pamphlets, in lectures, seminars, and the like. He says our journal, The Free Man, for instance, is available to students and libraries on request. Now, the third level of leadership is to achieve that excellence in understanding and exposition, which will cause other persons to seek you out as a tutor. This is the highest you can go, but he says there is no limit as to how far you can go in becoming a good tutor. He says when you operate at this highest level of leadership, you must rely only on the power of attraction. And here's how he explains what he means by this. He says, on April 22nd, we had St. Andrew's Day at my golf club. About 150 of us were present, including yours truly. When I arrived at the club, the other 149 did not say, Leonard, won't you please play with me? Won't you please show me the proper stance, the proper grip, the proper swing? They didn't do it. You know why? Because by now, those fellows are aware of my incompetence as a golfer. But if you were to wave a magic wand and make me all of a sudden a Sam Sneed, a Ben Hogan, an all Arnold... Arnold Palmer, or the like, 
watch the picture change. He says, every member of that club would sit at my feet, hoping to learn from me how to improve his own game. This is the power of attraction. You cannot do well on any subject without an audience automatically forming around you. Trust me on that. He says, if you want to be helpful to the cause of freedom in this country, seek to become a skilled expositor. If you have worked at the philosophy of freedom and an audience isn't forming, don't write and ask what the matter is. He says, just go back and do more of your own homework. Actually, he says, when you get to this, into this third level of leadership, you have to use methods that are consonant with your objective. Suppose, for instance, that my objective were your demise. I could use some fairly low-grade methods, couldn't I? But he says, now suppose my objective to be the making of a great poet out of you. What could I do about that? Not a thing, unless by some miracle I first learned to distinguish good poetry from bad and then learn to impart this knowledge to you. He explains the philosophy of freedom is at the very pinnacle of the hierarchy of values. And if you wish to further the cause of freedom, he says you must use methods that are consonant with your objective. This means relying on the power of attraction. Now, Leonard Reed says, let me conclude with a final thought. This business of freedom is an ore that lies much deeper than most of us realize. Too many of us are prospecting wastefully on the surface. Freedom isn't something to be bought cheaply. A great effort is required to dig up this ore that will save America. And where are we to find the miners? Well, he says, I think we will find the miners of the freedom ore among those of you who love this country. I think we'll probably find them in this room. And if you were to ask me who, in my opinion, has the greatest responsibility as a miner... I would suggest that it is the attractive individual occupying the seat you are sitting in. I've loved this essay for a long time, and I've done my best to help share some of these precepts when I've been given opportunities to speak to various groups or individuals. But that call to become an expositor of freedom, to be able to talk with confidence about the the free market, about voluntary exchange... That's pretty powerful stuff. Those three different levels of leadership, I mean, the first one is just simply knowing the difference between what is sound and what's unsound. That doesn't seem that bad, does it? I mean, it's, it, it requires some effort, but it doesn't require, you know, that, uh, boy, you better be studying night and day. That second level of leadership where you have reached the degree of understanding and exposition that makes it possible for you to expose the fallacies of collectivism and to set forth the principles of freedom to those who, you know, come within your orbit, that does take some studying. What a time, though, to have all these resources available literally at your fingertips. On your phone, on your laptop, your tablet. I mean, for everything that's, that's kind of going wonky in the world right now, this is, this is not one of the bad things. We have all the combined knowledge that we should ever need to better understand these things. Our biggest problem is, you know, we get distracted. I'm watching cat videos on YouTube. (laughs) Why would I want to spend some time, you know, reading and and being able to talk and and expound on freedom? But this is is what is required. And not everybody's going to feel it. So don't, don't feel like, well, but I'll be out of step. People are going to think I'm weird. They will. Can we just not pretend that that's not the case and just tell you, yeah, they're very likely to think that you're weird. Wear it as a badge of honor. 
Because the bottom line is you want to be the kind of person who is prepared when the opportunity comes up, when someone needs to learn what you know, what you understand about these, these principles. You got to be in a position to share it. And then that third level of leadership, this is the one that to, to me is most remarkable. But when he says, you know, if you will do this, He says, I, I promise you, people will come and seek you out when you, when you know what you're talking about. The power of attraction. And if people are seeking you out for your advice, that is a very good sign that you are likely on the right track. Now, there's, there's some risk that comes with that too. You could probably imagine. Well, what if my ego buys into it and suddenly I start thinking, I am God's gift to the freedom movement seen a lot of people do that. Probably been guilty of it myself. I think there's a rule of thumb, and I'm, I'm going to, this is awkward, but, uh, and it's, it's imperfect, but I'm going to share it anyway. If the person who is explaining or is trying to impart some kind of knowledge to you, if they are more about building their brand, if they are more about, uh, you know, creating a monument to themselves. In other words, if they are the primary focus and the message is a secondary consideration, it's possible that they may be have, may have become distracted. They may be doing what they're doing for reasons other than I think it's a good idea to help people understand the principles and practices of freedom and I'd be willing to sacrifice to make that happen. Nowhere was this made more apparent to me than when I would watch the late, great, um, Stephen Pratt deliver his uh, uh, Know Your Liberty lectures. He was so, so knowledgeable. And yet he never tried to direct the attention to him. It was never about how, how smart or how well read he was. It always came down to he would point people to the sources, ask them to look at the sources themselves, and decide for themselves. Is this true? And he would always end his presentations with a hymn because it didn't feel appropriate to applaud after a hymn. So he wouldn't even take his accolades after a beautiful, brilliant 12-hour, sorry, two-hour presentation. I think that's a good example to follow. You ready for a little work? Let's step up and get after it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today. Our program brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also Pure-Light.com, HSLAmmo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I have provided links to all of these great sponsors at the show in the show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. I have uh, been drawing upon the, the expertise of Leonard E. Reed in today's show. This is, uh, this is officially the uh, Independence Day show, even though the 4th of July was yesterday. So these are show notes for uh, July 5th, 2021. 
I choose to work today because uh, my work is, uh, well, my work is all about freedom and about proclaiming liberty throughout the land. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I I look at uh, Leonard Reed and the contributions he made in founding the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. I I have an article here. This is actually from Gary Gallas. This was published on Fee's website, fee.org. And the headline really grabbed me. The biggest thing that separates authoritarians from supporters of freedom. And Gary Gallus draws upon some of the lessons that Leonard Reed gave, reminding us of just how large this chasm is between utopian promises that authoritarians offer and what they actually have the wisdom to provide. Gary Gallus says, in today's media... We are constantly being told of new and improved impositions that are needed to replace the old hat ideas of freedom and open competition. But he says the visions held by these proponents could hardly be further from reality. Leonard Reed wrote of this decades ago in Freedom, A New Vision, Chapter 2 of his 1975 Castles in the Air. Now, while the trend wasn't as pronounced then as it has become, Reed's vision is still worth serious reflection today as it is much clearer and far more promising than authoritarianism disguised rather as utopianism. Leonard Reed said, Why speak of freedom as a vision? Freedom is an ideal way of life more ardently to be hoped for than seriously expected in our time. Why the adjective new? Well, our opponents continually refer to this way of life as old hat or words to that effect. Troubles in society brought on by authoritarian mischief, they lay to freedom, quite innocently in most cases, and for the reason that they have no understanding of what is meant by freedom in its higher sense. But he says, let us be charitable. How many on our side of the fence have been or are clear in their own minds about freedom and manifested in their actions? He says, the truth is that freedom, as it's been approximated, first in England and then in the USA, is the newest, most in, most remarkable politico-economic achievement in the world's history, enjoyed for five or six generations at most. The structures for this way of life, this free way of life, were erected in 1776, the simultaneous appearance of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and the Declaration of Independence. Now here Gary Gallus points out, the new progressive ideas in the air all around us are actually old, regressive, tyrannical, and tired. The fact that their proponents don't even know that tells us how much trust we can put in their knowledge and judgment. Again, he quotes Leonard Reed, The issue is between two opposed ways of life. Our opponent's way is the older, as old as mankind, authoritarianism in its numerous forms, which are contrary to natural law and prevent life from flowing. The newer is freedom, featuring unfixed, improving, Flowing, creative concepts. Gary Gallus says, Only freedom allows us the possibility of growing to achieve our fullest potential. Back to Leonard Reed, quote, Anyone who believes, as I do, that man's earthly purpose is growth in awareness, perception, consciousness, has no choice but to side with individual liberty, freedom, and to look with disfavor on all forms of authoritarianism. Human improvement or growth stems from an exercise of the faculties. Exercise is possible only as we are free to work on our individual selves and is diminished to the extent that we are worked over by others. Growth without liberty, that is, without the freedom to exercise our faculties and to discover our creative potentialities, 
is out of the question. Given the goal of individual growth, authoritarianism is an utterly absurd way of life. The freedom philosophy differs from most philosophies in that it does not prescribe how any individual should live his life. It allows freedom for each to do as he pleases, live in accord with his own uniqueness as he sees it, so long as the rights of others are not infringed. End quote. Now, Gary Gallus says this way of life commends no external control to the individual beyond those which a government limited to keeping the peace and invoking a common justice might impose. Each individual acts on his own authority and responsibility. It has nothing in it at all that calls on me or the government to run your life. The immense personal and social benefits of freedom mean it should be the touchstone, the ideal toward which we constantly orient ourselves. Again, Leonard Reed says, unless we have the ideal in our minds, we have no compass, no way of knowing in which direction our efforts should be pointed. Knowing the ideal is the first step in down-to-earth practicality. Now he says, I define the ideal, freedom, in a refined state, as no man-concocted restraints against the release of creative human energy. It's practice and aspiration. In the economic realm, we call this the free market. Now, Gary Gallus says, look, to understand the ideal of freedom, we must not only know what it is, but also what it is not. Leonard Reed says, not at all surprisingly, most people think of the free market as private enterprise. But he says, this, however, is not what we mean. All sorts of wholly objectionable enterprises are private. Piracy, embezzlement, hijacking. Same is true for governmental interventions that favor some and injure others. The free market is so little trusted because so few are aware of what it is. Thinking of ourselves as if we were a free people leads us to mistakenly conclude that our present hodgepodge of intervention is a manifestation of the free market. Consequently, we imagine that a free and self-responsible people would behave no better than do the majority of us today. But what we mean and what most people think we mean are poles apart. And Reed then turns to an interesting analogy between the light spectrum and the political spectrum. Political economic philosophy, he says, is loosely analogous to the light spectrum. Substitute the long and short arms of government for the long and short wavelengths. At the extreme left, we observe the long arm of government reaching into nearly every phase of human existence. That's authoritarianism. Then as we move to the right on this spectrum, the arms of government become shorter, reaching into fewer and fewer facets of life. Finally, comparable to the ultraviolet lying just beyond the visible spectrum, we would find the arms of government so short that they could not reach into and have control over a single creative activity. No more than a peacekeeping arm of society. This ideal can only be imagined beyond the right end of the visible spectrum, where schemes to manage the lives of others would be non-existent. Now, Gary Gallus says to understand why freedom holds out the prospect for the greatest possible human growth and development, Reed focuses on its ability to utilize knowledge that not one person has by him or herself, including those who would dictate to others based on the minuscule knowledge they have. Quote, The market possesses a wisdom that does not exist even remotely in any discrete individual. For instance, because you cannot imagine how mail would be delivered ever so much more efficiently than now if you turned it over to the, if turned over to the market, 
Never let your faith falter by reason of your infinitesimal infinitesimal know-how. To claim that the free market has wisdom a billion or million times your own is a gross understatement. Leonard Reed says, From whence comes this enormous knowledge that does not remotely exist in any person, the miracle of the market, when men are free? And he says, What we must bear in mind is that the sole generative force at the human level stems from individual human faculties, intuition, insight, inventiveness, perception, awareness, consciousness, and the like. And to the extent the free market prevails, to that extent is economic life featured by free entry and competition. In addition to the heritage of the ages, these features enormously stimulate and bring to the fore the genius potentially existing among our contemporaries. Thus, it's possible for us to be graced not only by the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of the past, but also by the considerably untapped ingenuity of the present. And Leonard Reed says the best in everyone is brought forth when the best is allowed to succeed, or is required to succeed, rather. The free market works its wonders simply because the generative capacity of countless millions has no external force standing against its release. Man, the wisdom of this guy, it makes me wonder, why haven't more people heard of Leonard E. Reed? I'll tell you, some of the most effective advocates of liberty definitely have. And that's why I'm introducing you to the man today. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you this article from the Foundation for Economic Education, the biggest thing that separates authoritarians from supporters of freedom. And I'm guessing that uh, you are likely a supporter of freedom, although every one of us has authoritarian tendencies. It happens. What can I say? Gary Gallas is the author of this article, but he leans heavily on Leonard E. Reed, who is the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. Just a couple quick thoughts here. This is just to finish up. Gary Gallas says, given the wisdom we can access and the growth in our own wisdom, we can generate only by way of freedom and the incentives it creates. He says, Reed concludes by reminding us of how large the chasm is between the many utopian promises authoritarians offer and what they actually have the wisdom to provide us. This is from Leonard Reed, quote, Authoritarianism presupposes non-existent gods, that is, politicians who naively believe that they know how to steer mankind aright and thus can run your, my, and everyone else's life to humanity's advantage. They haven't taken the very first step in wisdom, namely achieving an awareness of how little they know. While no wizard among them all can even make a pencil, each has little doubt that mankind, if made in his infinitesimal image, would be improved, and that all of our millions of requirements would better prosper under his direction. Prosper, he says, preposterous. The free market, on the other hand, is attuned to the little we know. It does not presuppose a non-existent omniscience. Instead, the needed knowledge waits to be drawn upon. Everyone's life is free to flow and grow. Life's fulfillment a possibility for each human being. 
Freedom in this higher sense is indeed a vision, is a castle in the air, under which we are well advised to put foundations. Check the show notes for July 5th, 2021, to find a link to this article. Very worthwhile stuff. You spend a little time with Leonard Reed and you will start to appreciate the the depth that some people can bring to the table when it comes to advocating for things like private property, like free markets, like freedom of conscience and individual liberty. Gotta love it. Something that illustrates this too, this is a good follow-up, a nice segue here, is uh, the damage done by COVID. We hear people talk about this, you know, this is kind of a favorite phrase of various news organizations, the, the economic damage done by COVID. But I think they're, they're missing something here because COVID itself, the virus, isn't what did the damage. The economic damage that we are seeing is due to the official response to COVID. And Brandon Smith, who is, uh, I think, one of the more insightful commentators out there, has an excellent explanation of the damage done as well as where it's leading us. Here's his take. He says, sometimes it's important to step away from a problem in order to better understand it. So he says, recently I went on a trip across the Pacific Northwest to revisit some old stomping grounds and take a break from the often disconcerting developments of today's world, at least for a little while. We all need a vacation from the information war at times, and though I was happy for the rest, he says, I'm also happy to be back. After traveling on the road across four states, I was able to gauge the general condition of the U.S. in terms of social and economic effects of the pandemic mandates and COVID propaganda. And he says, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that the propaganda has not been all that effective in most places. So the overall picture looks something like this. In the majority of rural and semi-rural areas, as well as cities in red counties, regardless of the state, the majority of people were not wearing masks and the bulk of businesses were not demanding that people wear them. The vaccine ads and propaganda were also at a minimum. This includes Washington State and Oregon, which have been notorious lately for their draconian restrictions. While Washington has technically lifted mandates starting just a few days ago, the pressure to vaccinate is ever-present there. He says, Oregon was the worst state I passed through in terms of business pressure and mob pressure. But even in most towns he visited, he says, the ratio of masked cultists to normal unmasked people was right around 50-50. Brandon Smith says most of the businesses I entered said nothing to me about not wearing a mask. And so far, there doesn't seem to be any major push for vaccine passports, though I suspect suspect this will come soon enough. He said it was only in or near progressive-run cities like Portland and Seattle that COVID controls were clearly present and oppressive. Near Portland, he says, I saw numerous people wearing their masks outside and even in their own cars. It was truly bizarre considering that it's almost impossible to catch a virus outside in open air and in sunlight, which is scientifically proven to kill microorganisms. Clearly, the leftists in these places are operating within their own little bubbles of ignorance and collectivism. Needless to say, he says, I kept my time in Oregon to a bare minimum. But the strangest aspect of the whole mess is that Washington and Oregon have relatively high rates of vaccination. The people religiously wearing masks have no doubt been vaccinated by now, so either they must not actually believe in the effectiveness of the vaccines or 
they're wearing their masks anyway as a tool for virtue signaling. Luckily, this insane mentality has not spread much beyond the boundaries of metropolitan areas. After all, COVID infections and fatality rates have been plunging. They were plunging in red states, which struck down mandates well before the vaccines were released to the public. And so he asks, why continue the charade? He says, my trip confirmed some of my biggest suspicions. For one, he says, it proved to me that the mainstream media vision of public submission to the COVID mandates was, in fact, false. The only places where mandates are obeyed is in or near major cities. And he says, I also noted that Indian reservations were decidedly aggressive in mandate enforcement. These were actually the few places where people tried to demand I wear a mask, though it was usually some white lady working for minimum wage. And frankly, he says, I find it odd that Native American communities would be so quick to enforce federal government recommendations or trust federal medical analysis. It's sad to say, but he says they seem to be drinking the Kool-Aid by the gallons. Now, the Internet is in many ways a fake world, says Brandon Smith. Propagandists use manufactured consensus on the web to make it seem as if the majority of people are on board with medical tyranny, but it's simply not so. He says, from my observations, people are tired of the restrictions. They're fed up. Whenever I walk into a hotel or at most retailers, the people at the front desk or the register would usually notice I wasn't wearing a mask and their eyes would light up and they would pull down their mask to talk to me. They were happy just to be acting like humans again. And he says, I relate my experiences here because I realize that many in the liberty movement are apt to assume the worst possible scenarios for every event. He says, I know because I do it myself on occasion. But there are three major lies that some liberty activists believe when it comes to the pandemic. Okay, here are the lies. Most people have been conned into taking experimental vaccines. That's lie number one. Number two, the majority of the U.S. is submitting to the mandates. And lie number three, leftists are relocating in droves to swarm red states and red counties and they're bringing their COVID politics with them. He says, for some reason, conservatives are still clinging to fears of liberal relocation, even though that mostly died out after the 2006-2008 housing crash. And today, all the data shows that when leftists move, they move from their favorite city to the suburbs right outside their favorite city. Now, Brandon Smith says, sorry, but I can say with authority, none of these three looming threats is happening. It's nonsense. In fact, it's the opposite in almost every case. The people who claim otherwise are frightened and they are factually wrong. And he says, I derive this position not just from my travels, but from hundreds of thousands of my readers across the country that I deal with regularly. The propagandists want conservatives to live in fear just as much as they want leftists to live in fear. And they know which lies affect conservatives the most. Dispelling disinformation then allows us to deal with the real threats at hand. On that note, we've got to take a very quick break, so we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, I invite you to check out the link thoughtfully provided in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. While you're there, consider subscribing to the show. If you find value in this message, consider becoming a monthly supporter or monthly patron. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, let's get back to the Brandon Smith article that I was sharing earlier. This is an article titled, The COVID Cult Has Been Slowly Killing America's Economy and There's Not Much Time Left. Okay, this is the bad news portion of his article. He gave the good news, and the good news was that, hey, most people haven't been conned into taking the experimental vaccines. The majority of the U.S. is not, in fact, submitting to the mandates. And those fears over leftists relocating in droves to swarm your red state or your red county and bring their COVID politics with them, not happening. At least not uh, not in the sense that you may have been led to believe it's happening. So with the disinformation dispelled, let's talk about the real challenge. He says, okay, now the good news is out of the way. I have to get to the bad news. He says, economically, the U.S. has been gutted by the government pandemic response. And he says, I'm certain now more than ever, there's not much time left to rectify the situation. At this point, fixing things might be impossible. If that's the case, our only chance is to prepare to survive the fallout. So here's what he says he's noticed so far. Almost every place he has traveled was desperate for working staff. And the heat wave that hit the area this past week was brutal. But he says it should have been manageable. Brandon Smith says, I've lived through worse heat waves and can't remember a time when half the businesses shut down in an area because they couldn't handle the customer volume. But he says this was the case in every single town. Finding access to services was incredibly difficult because most cases were most places rather were closed. See, the problem was that the heat wave was incidental. The real obstacle was that many businesses have been without a full crew of employees for a year now. And this is taking a toll on their operations. So the heat wave gave them an excuse to close because they don't have the people to stay open. And he says, we can thank the federal government and multiple state governments for this situation right now because it is actually more profitable for workers to stay at home and collect COVID-boosted unemployment than it is to actually work. This is not hurting the major retailers and corporate big box stores that much, but it is destroying small businesses that simply can't raise wages high enough to compete with government-juiced unemployment checks and stimulus. So McDonald's can hike their wages up to $15 an hour and give new workers a $500 signing bonus. But the mom-and-pop restaurants down the street can't. What this system is doing is quietly eliminating the small business sector, the same sector that employs around half of all Americans. On top of this, corporations have been given an endless windfall of stimulus dollars, while small businesses have received almost nothing. Now, Brandon Smith says, I've been saying for some time now, this is actually part of the plan. The goal is to erase small businesses from the economy, leaving only the corporate behemoths behind. The ongoing government rewards given to people for refusing to work just supports his theory. And he says, even though the vaccination agenda in the U.S. has mostly failed, do not expect that elites like Anthony Fauci are going to give up on their dreams of conquest. Fauci has recently asserted there are now two Americas, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But Brandon Smith says he must be blind because that is not what I see. He says, I see the people who blindly follow government demands in vaccination and the people who actually listen to the science. I see idiots versus skeptics. I see cultism versus logic. I see people who want to control others versus people who just want to be free to live their lives as they see fit. I see agenda versus truth. 
This is not about people being vaccinated. And it's not about public health or saving lives. Rather, COVID is a tool for subjugation of the public. That's all it is. That's all it ever will be. If America is divided, it's because there are people who want to enslave. There are people who enjoy their enslavement. And there are people who want nothing to do with enslavement. Now, he says Fauci's also notorious for being a terrible scientist, but he is a loyal technocrat. He has a habit of dismissing any science that does not support his preconceived conclusions. The science shows that people who already have had COVID are unlikely to be reinfected. In fact, there is no evidence that COVID reinfection is a concern for the vast majority of people. Yet Fauci does not count people who've had COVID and have built up immunity as safe. Fauci's position is that if you are not yet vaccinated with the experimental mRNA cocktails, then you are a risk to others. Yet if this is the case, that means the vaccines are useless. If unvaccinated people are a threat to vaccinated people, then what use are the vaccines in the first place? The Surgeon General, the same guy that originally claimed Americans should not bother buying masks because the masks would be useless for them, is echoing Fauci's propaganda, adding that the new Delta variant would strike unvaccinated people the hardest. Now, there's still no evidence that the supposed Delta variant is any more of a threat than the original iteration of covid But this is not stopping governments from rolling out the fear campaign once again. With assertions that the Delta variant may still infect vaccinated people, governments are suggesting that lockdowns, masks, and social distancing will stay in place for the foreseeable future. So Brandon Smith says one has to ask that burning question. Why become a guinea pig for an untested mRNA vaccine when it's no guarantee of freedom nor a guarantee of health safety? Hell, he says, why take an untested vaccine when the death rate of COVID is so small it affects less than 0.26% of the population outside of nursing homes? And he says, I also will have to say, I called this outcome well in advance. The globalists are becoming incredibly predictable, says Brandon Smith, as they scramble to salvage their flailing reset agenda in the U.S., He says, as I've noted for the past year, the COVID restrictions are never meant to end. There will always be another mutation of COVID, so the mandates will be perpetual. They're meant to continue for all eternity, or at least until the entire population submits to government control of every micro aspect of their daily lives. That said, he says, I don't think the COVID cult needs to keep mandates in place in the U.S. for much longer, because they can't. if they can't con the majority of the population into compliance, they will instead use the confusion of the pandemic to undermine the economy. Consider this for a moment. The incident responses of many businesses in the Northwest during the heat wave was to shut down or cut hours in half rather than adapt and overcome. And he asks, would this have ever happened before the COVID lockdowns? He says, I think not. The go-to response or the go-to solution rather to any real or perceived crisis in America now is to close down and hide. The response is to reduce standards and give up, or it is to print money and throw it at the system without any real strategy to use that stimulus effectively. And the stimulus itself is doing more damage than COVID ever could. Bottom line, says Brandon Smith, is this is a poisonous philosophy that could destabilize the very foundations of the nation, and it's happening right in front of our eyes. He says, I saw it on the road this past week. It's everywhere. Conservative states are working to counter these developments, and he says, I hope it's not too late. 
the COVID cult has been feeding like termites on the pillars of our economy for many months now. And though the mandates are being rightfully abandoned, the consequences of collapse are far-reaching. We may not know the true extent of the damage for months to come. I get it. That's, that's pretty sobering. And again, my goal here is not to uh, terrify you or leave you feeling like, oh my gosh, there's nothing we can do. I think these are just hard facts that nonetheless need to be faced and dealt with. Not because you're a masochist, but just because uh, that's, that's what grown-ups do. All right, having said that, let me share something with you that's a little more uplifting here. Um, Annie Holmquist, she has uh, an excellent article about teaching our children how to weather life storms by rooting them in a garden. Now, look, with the intense heat waves that's been going on here lately, the thought of working in the garden is not that appealing, at least not at the moment. But listen to her take on what happens when you put kids to work in the garden. And he says, it was a comfortable August day years ago when my mom herded my sister and me out the back door and into the garden. Working my way through knee-high weeds wasn't the ideal summer activity for a grade schooler like myself, but she says, the three of us kept at it, finally stopping to lie in the grass under a shady tree to rest. After a bit, the others fell asleep, and she says, I got inspired. Why not hop back into the weed patch and see how much progress I could make before mom woke up? And she says, my venture was successful, and I had the pleasure of surprising my mother with my labor of love. But she says, in retrospect, the surprise was on me. Because she says, I think back on that day as the one in which my interest in gardening began to grow. Today, as I pull thistles out of the raspberry patch and dig up extra chive plants to give to friends, I'm grateful that my mom had me get down and dirty in the garden while I was still young. For the lessons I've learned there are valuable, shaping ones, necessary for any child maturing into adulthood. Now, we've got to take a break here, so we're going to come back to Annie Holmquist's article in just a few moments. Again, just this reminder, you will find this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Take the deeper dive. Click on the article. Read the links within the article. And then if it hits the right nerve, feel free to share it with your friends. We'll take a quick break. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from its editor, Annie Holmquist. Weathering life storms by rooting children in a garden. And I don't want this to sound like a real dire prediction, but if you're noticing the rising cost of food, you know, if you've been grocery shopping here lately, uh, you may have noticed it's it's getting more and more expensive, and that's uh, that's a concern. So what if you were able to produce more of your own food? So this is one of the added benefits. Not only can you teach kids responsibility, but, hey, there might even be some self-reliance in this for you. Let's go back to Annie's article here. Talk a little bit about diligence and responsibility. Way to go, Annie, various neighbors shouted as she wrestled the tiller, turning over the soil to get ready for another year. 
And he says, this was a new experience for me as my dad, who always did the initial muscle work, was sidelined due to a broken collarbone. She says, I didn't have enough upper body strength to move the tiller forward, so I got creative and walked backward, pulling the tiller as I went. Now, she says, my muscles felt like I'd been hit by a car after that experience, but there was great joy in having stepped up, taken responsibility for a difficult task, and seen it through to completion. But she says, children don't have to maneuver the tiller through the ground in order to learn this lesson. Tending a garden naturally lends itself to a lesson in responsibility and diligence. As the plants won't take root, the weeds will choke out the plants, and the fruit will rot on the vine unless children put in the time and do the hard work of nurturing and harvesting. Now, the beautiful thing about a garden is that it gives tangible rewards, demonstrating to children that their hard work does pay off. Then there's the factor of generosity and neighborliness. She says, one summer day at the height of the tomato harvest, our old Italian neighbor, who to my childhood, childlike mind was rather intimidating with his gruff, mafia-esque voice, made his way up the driveway and alongside our garden. Trying to be friendly, my mom offered him a few tomatoes from the bin in which she was collecting them. Now, misunderstanding, he took the whole bin from her and trotted home. Our family was a bit aghast at the loss of our biggest crop, and yes, let's be honest, a little bit resentful. But the incident was a good lesson in swallowing that resentment and choosing instead to be generous, good neighbors to someone who didn't have many friends. And she says that generosity boomeranged back to us as we saw that old man soften and grow friendly and even generous toward our family in return. While our Italian friend probably offered the most difficult lesson in generosity and neighborliness from our garden, she says others have been much easier. Working outside naturally encourages neighbors to stop and talk while on a walk, even coming into the yard to see the growth of a certain plant, all the while building the community relationships that are often non-existent today. And how can a generous gift of squash fresh off the vine or some garden carrots not help but strengthen those bonds? Then there's the factor of peaceful contemplation. She says perhaps one of the greatest benefits of a garden is the time for peaceful contemplation that it brings. Children are forced to get away from the TV, computer, and phone when they work with the earth, and actually have time to breathe free, dream dreams, and process life's problems. She says, I know, as I've done a fair amount of praying, crying, and thinking in my own garden. Today, our nation and society are full of noise, and giving children a chance to get away from it all and revel in the simple hard work that built America, even in their own backyard, is a worthwhile goal. That's what author Whitaker Chambers was aiming at when he moved his family out of the city and to their own farm in the mid-20th century. Chambers, an ex-communist spy who later testified in Congress about the subversive communist activities taking place in the U.S., wrote about that farm life in his autobiography, Witness. Quote, to give such life to children, no sacrifice is too great. But we did not mean only to root our children in the soil. Above all, we meant to root them in the nation. That part of the nation, each of whose days, is a great creative labor. That is the part of the nation to which by choice I belong. The farm is the soil in which I like in which like my children I spread my roots. End quote. Now Chambers goes on to say, in the age of crisis, the farm has been our way of trying to give our children what peace and security is left in the world. He and his wife hoped such an experience would give their children the inner strength to face the years ahead. Annie Holmquist says, given today's world, our children will likely face difficult times ahead. 
and it's our responsibility to prepare them for those difficult times. Many of us can't give our children the farm, but it's feasible to give them a bit of earth to till and tend. And in doing so, perhaps we, like Chambers, will instill not only the skills, but also the knowledge, character, desire, and ability to withstand the storms of life that will inevitably come. What a great, refreshing outlook. And yes, I have a link to Annie's article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Okay, here's an added bonus for you, too. I talk a lot about uh, the right to keep and bear arms. I wanted to share with you an article that uh, my friend Chicago Ron shared with me. The best exercise. Listen to this. While writing his 15-year-old nephew, Peter Carr, in 1785 regarding what he considered the best form of exercise, Jefferson wrote, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I advise the gun. While this gives a moderate exercise to the body, it gives boldness, enterprise, and independence to the mind. Games played with the ball and others of that nature are too violent for the body and stamp no character on the mind. Let your gun, therefore, be the constant companion of your walks. Now, the author here says, I knew there was a reason I liked Thomas Jefferson. I wholeheartedly agree with with his course of calisthenics for the cranial inhabitant. Nothing is more exhilarating than a good day on the range. The well-placed shot is an exercise of mental haiku, consisting of a complex orchestration of concentration and sight with the blending of fine and gross motor skills. Nothing is more exhilarating than placing your bullet whence you aim. Doing so is evidence of a successful sequence where body and mind mesh as one, accomplishing this complex task. While appearing simple and mundane to the mere bystander, let them try this elaborate exercise themselves to see just how complex it is. And the feeling of elation followed after one relaxes from the ardent application of both physical and mental prowess provides proof of skilled proficiency when the bull's mark is punched. Today we would call this a form of meditation when he talks about the mental skill involved, for shooting is the highest form of mental exercise, combining physical skill for an intended purpose. When shooting, the outside world ceases to exist. From the time the firearm is lifted from the rack until it is returned. Nothing is present to distract us. It's during this mind-cleansing endeavor of focusing solely on bullet placement, which invigorates and refreshes us. Simply put, it wipes the slate clean. This boldness, Jefferson mentions, from confidence instilled when one can knowingly place their ball with deadly accuracy, if need be, for food or defense. A bold feeling indeed that needs not be brazenly displayed, but one that is obvious by the confidence exhibited in daily quests. The physical skills, well, gross motor skills are challenged with proper erect posture and holding your rifle or pistol rock steady. Your body is your foundation of stability, both physical and mental. A firm grip locks your gun to your body's foundation. Fine motor skills are used during the cocking of the gun, and most importantly, the pressing of the trigger. To ignition time, coordinating them with the wobble of the wavering sights onto your intended target. A complex and convoluted task, indeed, that would become automatic and secondary in nature with repeated practice. And then there's the matter of concentration. Lastly, Extreme concentration ties all these skills together, functioning as a whole unit, capable of placing your ball for whence you aim. So old Thomas is dead on describing the gun as the ultimate form of exercise. What other form of activity 
makes use of so many complex skill sets mentally and physically. And yet, can one keep alive providing the basics of food, shelter, and protection while lifting spirits? Making us feel alive? He says, I can't think of one better. And who am I to question such a great man? I actually really like the the take on this. (laughs) By the way, the last quote is too good not to share. This is from uh, our first president, George Washington, who, showing how important it was for free men to bear arms, said, Firearms stand in importance, next in, in importance to the Constitution itself. They are the American people's liberty teeth and keystone under independence. From the hour the pilgrims landed to the present day, events, occurrences, and tendencies prove that to ensure peace, security, and happiness, the rifle and pistol are equally indispensable. The very atmosphere of firearms anywhere restrains evil interference. They deserve a place of honor with all that's good. Yeah, it doesn't uh, doesn't sound like what uh, the current occupant of the White House is saying these days, but... I I really appreciated uh, Thomas Jefferson's take on, yep, when it comes to exercise, this is what I would recommend you do. Take your gun and learn to shoot it well. Of course, this is pretty tough. If you live in a more urban area, that's going to be a challenge. But the whole part about the physical skill, the mental skill, the, the concentration, that's legit. It also teaches responsibility, and I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. This is The Brian Hyde Show.